Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Dan Lejoie, and sitting across from me is my good friend, Riley Stewart. And together, we host a show called Barber's Delight, uh, where we talk about uh, haircuts and what's new and in fashion. I'm going to start things off by talking about the Billy Bob Boy. Uh, Riley, uh, what's your favorite uh, hair design this uh, this season? Hey, Dan. Um, well, this week I'm going to talk about how you can actually use painter's tape and put it across your child's forehead to get the perfect bang. Oh, that that's great, because I there's one thing I hate is mismatched bangs. I just cut them off when I screw up. Well, I remember when I was five years old and my mother cut my hair on the first day of school and I had an uneven bang. And I have to admit, I still carry the pain of that experience with me to this day. So mm-hmm. we are going to help That's right. all of the people out there in Radio Land correct the uneven bang. And if you're really, you know, not comfortable with the bang, just use the window frame and cut a square, like where the bangs would be. Just cut them right away. And just have the drapes hanging on the side. It looks good. It, it, it's a striking look. It, it makes a statement. Did you think that when I started that I was going to give you like a, just a real plain old uh, opening? Or did you were you suspicious that I was up to something? You were talking in a very sort of respectful way, yes. in a very adult way. And I didn't know where it was going to go, but then, mm-hmm. of course. But I'm happier that I handled it the way I did this week than the week before, <laughs> where I just words. stared at you blinking. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know, someone who's been trained extensively in improv, and I just stared at you like, uh... <laughs> uh yeah, I'm not going to live that one down. No. Well, Riley, this is a... Big episode, literally and figuratively. Fuck yeah. It's our 74th and 75th episode ex- extravaganza. Yeah, we're combining them. We're, we're combining them into one. It's big, and it, it is big. It's going to be a, a longer listen than, you know, what you would normally get from us. So uh, we are we are combining. We don't want to break up the mojo, the flow. No. So we're going to keep the, uh, the episodes going. This is the second time... We do a weird odds and ends. Exactly. And because this episode is going to be a bit longer, we kind of were hoping you would find the most comfortable chair in your house. Go and get that afghan that your grandmother knit for you just weeks before she died. Rest on a ladder. Curl up and just listen to this episode and just let let the energy of the weird flow through you. Mm Mm-hmm. That was oddly sexual. Yeah. I'm all hot and bothered. Yeah, the way I said flow through you. Yeah, it made it dirty. Yeah, anyway. Hmm. Okay. We've lost all our Utah listeners. Well, they were teetering on the brink of exiting the show anyway (laughs) there. I don't know that we have any. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure we do. Oh, maybe we do. I've never really done. I've been to Utah. It's beautiful. I'd like to be. uh, I'd like to go there. Sorry. I want to go to Monument Valley because it looks like the sort of landscape from the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show. You know, the Roadrunner. Wait, Monument Valley, Valley that's not where the um, the carved heads of the presidents are. <laughs> no, that's Mount Rushmore. Okay. What's Monument Valley? Monument Valley has all those, um, I think they call them chimneys, where they're just tall rocks that are rust colored and they're... Oh, and that's in Utah? It literally looks like the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show backdrop. Is that where the movie 127 Hours takes place you know where he gets his arm james franco gets his arm trapped i don't know okay 
I don't know. I also want to see Devil's Tower. Devil's I feel Tower. Like you're starting to make these things up. No, 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 no. Devil's Tower is that weird um, formation that they used in Close Encounters oh. of the Third Kind. It's that big um, rock formation, and it's also very important in um, Aboriginal uh, kind of like the. History. Um, oh God, I'm Swiss cheese brain tonight. But that big rock in Australia, Ayers Ooh. Rock, Ayers, Ayers. And it's, but it's, I think it's real name is like Ululu or Ururu something. I don't know, but I I know people that went there and they say that it's right in the middle of nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Just, but it it holds significant, it's important to uh, the Aboriginal community. Yeah. It's a spiritual place. Yeah. That I knew. Ayers Rock. I only know of it because of Crocodile Dundee. I was right. Why can't I remember Ayers Rock, but I can remember Uluru? Do you have an interesting memory? It selects interesting things to save. Let's jump into it, eh? Yeah, we're five minutes in and we haven't even talked about anything weird, but, well, I guess we kind of Well, we have. We have. Maybe someday we'll do an episode on Ayers Rock. Maybe one day we should do an episode of just openings. Just endlessly open the show. That would be hilarious. That would be. Just keep opening it. April Fools. Yeah, we pause and then we open it again. (laughs) That's a really good idea, actually. All right, all right. So I'm going to get things started. Are you now? I'm going to get things started. Did we toss a coin? I don't remember that. I'm a bully, and I'm butting my way to the front of the line. And and just to explain to folks, Riley and I come across stories that are just not substantial enough for a full episode. But they're still great stories. And so what we've done is we we keep these stories and we're saving them for these types of shows. So this is the second time we've done this. Mm-hmm. And some of these date back, like I found these like over a year ago. Mm-hmm. But there just was no opportunity to share them until now. Some of the ones that I'm going to be using tonight, actually, um, all of them, Dan, come from, I think I've said it a number of times on the on the pod before, but my big inspiration for wanting to do this was a book that my dad mm-hmm. bought me from Reader's Digest called Mysteries of the Unexplained. Mm-hmm. Every single story that I'm going to tell you tonight is in that book. Oh, great. Yeah, they were all notes that I made earlier about stories that I would like to pursue. So this is, this is like a classic throwback. Yeah, it's something I would have read when I was 11 years old because I read the entire book. Well, let's, uh, I'm gonna, th- this story is a, a more recent one, the first one I'm going to start off with. Okay. And it takes us back to the snowy wastes of uh, Mother Russia oh. in Siberia, which we've been before uh, when we talked about Cannibal Island. Do you remember that? You were the one who did the I story. I was the one who, yeah, that, yeah, was, a, that was a terrible people. story. All right. It was not terrible as in a bad story, to, but just a sad story. It was really oh dark. God, I know. What an awful failed experiment that was. All right. So in the midst of the Siberian wilderness, there's a town known as Myrny, the only sign of humanity in a heavily forested landscape for miles around, which is very par for the course in that part of the world. There's not a lot of... Um, civilization in Siberia. Well, do you know, whenever I just think of Russia, period, the two things that come to mind are like St. Peter's Square and like the Kremlin and all that and the the cold, frozen wilderness. Yeah. Those are the two things that I associate with Russia. So only a few full-time residents call the town home, all of whom live in a small community built on stilts because the ground is too hard to dig in for like seven months of the year. And the other five months, it's like a mush. It's permafrost. So 
it's really difficult to build in areas where there's permafrost. It's the same here in Canada, mm-hmm. up in the north. Uh, most homes are built on stilts that are driven deep into the ground. And uh, that's that's how things are done. And remember the famous Russian witch Baba Yaga had a house that was on chicken feet. That's great, eh? And it would dance at different uh, holidays. No, it would just walk around. She could... Oh. She could move her house around at will, which is like, it was the earliest version of the trailer. You mean like a, like you'd hitch to your car? Yeah, like a mobile home. She could just move from place to place on her chicken-footed house. I think you're on some weird drugs. You're not the only one. <sighs> the town of Mirny would be entirely unremarkable, save for one thing. There's a giant hole in the middle of the town that is over 1,000 feet deep and over half a mile wide, that turns out an unnatural and mysterious amount of diamonds. Oh, and it sucks anything that flies overhead in. Oh my God. Or so they say. The mine's origins began in 1955. The Soviet Union was still rebuilding itself after World War II. Scientists across the country were sent to scour all corners of their vast land to find natural resources. And an enormous team of Soviet geologists have been searching the country, hoping to find traces of chemicals in the soil that would suggest diamonds were underneath. Finally, they found what they were looking for. While sifting through sediment in eastern Siberia, three geologists, Yuri Kadbarden, Ekaterina Elegina, 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 oh boy, and Viktor Avdenko, had by pure chance found the second only deposit of kimberlite in Russia at the time, which signaled that diamonds were in the area. By 1957, Stalin had ordered the Mirny diamond mine to be built, and construction was underway. If space and manpower allowed, this was to be the biggest and most successful diamond mine that the world had ever seen. However, the construction process presented a few problems. First, the ground in Siberia, as I mentioned before, is covered in a thick layer of permafrost for, again, about seven months of the year, making it hard to break through. And then when it's not frozen, it's like slush and you can't really build and work through slush. No. Furthermore, the average temperature in the region during the winter is 40 degrees below zero. And that's so cold that car tires shatter and oil freezes. Nonetheless, the Soviets persevered, using jet engines to thaw the ground, thick covers to keep machinery from freezing, and dynamite to blast through the permafrost the engineers managed to break ground and dig their mind. I said mind. Yeah, you did. They dug their mind. It sounds like a 60s thing. Hey, man, I dig your mind. Yeah. By 1960, the mine was up and running and proving to be every bit as successful as the geologists had hoped. Throughout the 1960s, the Mirny Diamond Mine produced 10 million carats of diamonds per year, 20% of which were gem quality. At its peak, there were roughly four carats per every ton of ore, one of the highest rates in the world. At one point, the mine produced a 342.57 carat fancy lemon yellow diamond, the largest that had ever been found in the country. During its run, the mine produced $13 billion worth of diamonds for the world. But as the mine's success grew, diamond distributors around the world became suspicious. The mine was successful Yes, but the number of diamonds it was allegedly churning out sounded too good to be true. 
De Beers, who I'm sure we're all familiar with, right? it's the world's top distributor of diamonds, wanted answers about the mine's production rates. To maintain its global hammerlock on market prices, De Beers' standard practice was to buy up as many diamonds as possible. However, De Beers' executives were worried the production rates at the Mirny mine might be so high, so many diamonds were coming out of there, the company wouldn't be able to buy as many diamonds as they normally would. There were just too many for them to buy. Wow, okay. Given that the mine was relatively small in comparison with underground mines elsewhere, the company felt the output should have been much smaller. So it wasn't as big as it is, like it it wasn't a thousand feet deep at this point. Right, of course. In 1970, representatives from De Beers requested a tour of the mine to see the production for themselves. The request took six years to be approved, and even after the representatives arrived in Mirny, they faced pushback. By the time the representatives were granted access to the mine, they only had 20 minutes to tour the facilities, hardly enough time to gain any insight. So they weren't even really allowed down into the mine. From then on, the Mirny Diamond Mine remained a mystery. It was kind of like a Willy Wonka-like factory churning out billions of dollars in product without a single outsider gaining entrance. Even after the fall of the Soviet Union and the early 1990s, the mine continued to run funded by several local companies. Then, suddenly, in 2001, it closed. Officials stated that there was a flood and that they had gone too deep to mine any further. However, conspiracy theorists and diamond dealers floated around alternative theories. One is that the mine was actually a special forces base. Oh, 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 we're going there. Okay, okay. And if you, some accounts say that it is, in fact, the Russian version of Area 51. Oh, super secret, super spooky. It, if you look at Area 51, there is a literal town that's built all around the opening of this thing. Mm-hmm. And it's massive, massive, massive hole. All the pictures, though, are from the side. There's no photos looking down, although you can see the mine from space. It's that big. Well, didn't you say earlier it was a half a mile in diameter? Yeah. That's huge. So there's even rumors that uh, helicopters and people have been sucked into this hole. And that's the reason why they closed it, because they've gone too deep. And I'll get into this in, in a moment, why this is this might be happening. They, they, they found the Balrog. You shall not pass. Well, and that's the thing, is that there's there's conspiracy theories that they found things that they shouldn't have found down there. Oh, it's that motherfucking Balrog with his whip. Eventually, there was another company came in and reopened the mine and started to uh, operate the mine again. They built tunnels around, because it was an open air mine. Right? Like you, you can mm-hmm. see straight down a thousand feet. They started building shafts around the main opening and started mining it again. But in 2017, a hundred there was a hundred miners in these tunnels and there was a massive flood and ninety-two of them perished. Oh wow, that's a huge body count. And they were like on level three hundred and twelve. So that just gives you an idea of how deep they are. Like that's crazy. It takes right? a special kind of person to even want to. It does to even to, to have the temerity to or not temerity to have the the stamina to go down that far. I couldn't do it. So since 2017, the mine has been abandoned. Right, you're not allowed anywhere near it. The military will not allow people to get close or or 
officials won't allow you to get close. The airspace above it is still restricted. Mm-hmm. Uh, the official explanation being the sheer depth of the mine can suck airplanes and people into it. And the way that's explained is that when the cold air from the surface meets the heated air coming up from the bowels of the mine, it creates a vortex powerful enough to suck, you know, small aircraft and helicopters or people that get too close to the rim in. Wow. Okay. So for now, the Mirny Diamond Mine remains a mysterious vortex, a seemingly bottomless pit that once produced more than half the world's diamonds and will remain perhaps a mystery forever. What did they find at the bottom of this pit? Oh, Dan, I want it to be the Balrog. I'm not even sure a Balrog exists. Oh, but I want it to exist, Dan. And, and, okay, all joking aside, I remember, and you, it's it's a parallel to what you're talking about. When I first read Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite parts of it is when they're in the Mines of Moria, because unlike the movie, they're in there for a long time mm-hmm. trying to get through the mountain, right? And do you remember the reason that the Balrog was there was because they dug too deep? Yes. So maybe that's the case. They dug too deep, Dan. Too damn deep. I like to think that it's a military base. Oh, I want it to be something spooky. It's so remote and weird and I don't know. And so in keeping with the Russian way of looking at the world. Well, this is what they're saying too, is that they think maybe perhaps that this mine wasn't produced. There was other areas in Russia that were producing diamonds and they were shuttling them there because they wanted to keep the other areas secret. And, and, And then this was also their way of controlling the diamond market. And I don't care about that stuff. De Beers is doing it anyway, right? It's a monopoly. On- yeah, they're a South African company, right? Yeah, they're douchey too. I saw a thing about Oh, them. they're terrible. Yeah, they are. The whole diamond industry is terrible. Well, yeah, I, I, I never understood that. Imagine that giant diamond you talked about, though, the big yellow one. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Imagine putting that on. Imagine Kim Kardashian throwing that on. It would probably break her neck, which is kind of a good thing. <laughs> well, really. I know. I'm a terrible person. I just think it's cool that there's a pit that's so deep as well that it's created a vortex. I want to see it. I know. I'm going to I'm gonna look it up and look, look it at up. pictures I don't care it. if you look it up. I'm not going to yell at you like you yell at me. Go look. Look up M-I-R-N-Y, Mirny Diamond Mine. No, I'm going to look it up after the show so I don't disturb the flow. Because I'm a considerate person. That's what it means to be considerate. Yeah. All right. Uh-huh. That's my first offering of the Weird Odds and Ends. I love that. I love that. That was very in-depth, too. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. My first choice for the night, Dan, is I wanted to um, sort of bookend Margot's episode. And oh. I came across this in my notes a couple of months ago, and I thought, ooh, I have to bring this one up again because it's it echoes hers. Dan, I'm going to tell you the story of the water spook of Methuen. Oh. It's a water spook, not a fire spook. So we're come to, you know, it's the balancing the elements here at the weird. We're all about balance. It's October 1963, and it's raining. And we are in Methuen, Massachusetts. The lovely Martin family are in their rec room because it's the 70s and, well, 60s, 70s. And remember, rec rooms were huge back then. Mm-hmm when they suddenly notice a damp patch has appeared on the wall. And as the family gathers around to study the strange discoloration, they suddenly hear a popping sound and a small gush of water comes out of the wall. They all back away and start to freak out because they think a pipe has burst and then it abruptly stops. And this happens again 
in another room and then again and again and continues to happen. On the same night? Yes. And it continues to happen for several days at random spots all through their house. The occurrences are about 50 minutes apart. Hold on. So the pipes are breaking or just water's coming out of their walls? Water's coming out of the wall. Oh. Yeah. And it's usually about a 20 second gush of water. And they're not like in an apartment building. No, they're in a house. It's a private home. The occurrences, I said, they're about 50 minutes apart and the water gush lasts about 20 seconds. It's always the same. There's a weird popping noise. And then that is followed by a gush of water. Now, the family, after a couple of days, didn't know what to do. And they actually, in interviews, said that it was like a game. They all had pots and pans and buckets, and they were just running around the house trying to figure out where the next occurrence would be. They weren't getting any sleep. It was awful. So the house quickly became so wet that the family had to relocate to the grandmother's house, which was located in the nearby town of Lawrence, Massachusetts. And Dan, the phenomena followed them. What? Yes. In a number of hours, their grandmother's house was completely soaked with water. And she's like, you got to get out. So they immediately called emergency services and the deputy fire chief. She kicked them out of the house? Well, she's like, you got to fix this. So the deputy fire chief from the town of Lawrence is asked to come and investigate. He comes. He determines there's no leaky pipes evident. He can find no source of the water in grandma's house. So they were worried for the safety of the grandmother. She's not a you know, spring chicken. So the Martins, in exasperation, return to their home in Methuen, Massachusetts. They turned off the water main as soon as they arrived and drained all of the pipes. However, the strange gushes of water did not abate. And they spent the next few days running through the house with buckets and pails, trying to staunch the flow of water and protect what was left of their house. And then, all at once, the strange gushes of water abruptly ceased. And that was the end of that. It never returned. They managed to repair their house. Some rugs were replaced. Some flooring had to be replaced. And it was never determined how or why the strange water ghost had haunted them. What are the theories? There are theories that it is a water ghost, that it was a water spirit. Like, did any uh, more skeptical people posit technical things that might have been going on? No. Because that just seems so strange, especially when they shut the water off and water's still coming. And everybody says it was a water spirit. There are now, there are, of course, the psychics and the people like that who um, believe that there maybe someone had drowned who lived in the house, that there had been some kind of, mm. maybe a child had drowned in a bathtub, maybe there was an accident involving a, you know, a, a portable swimming pool, that something had happened, and there was some kind of a restless spirit that associated water with its torment. But that was never determined as well, and the Methuens went on to live a very happy rest of their lives in that house. Water spook. That's all I got. That's uh, that's a weird one. Yeah. Here's another question I have for you. So that fa- how big's the family? I think it's five. Were there like teens? Were there, was there a teenage girl? I don't know how old the kids. Oh, right. I didn't even think of that. I don't yeah. know how old the kids were. The articles did not say. But that okay. is the story of the fire spook. The water spook. Oh, sorry. Water spook. They should have gone to the fire spook house and then it would have countered that. I wonder what would have happened if they'd done that. Yeah, fire spook meets See, water spook. I find spook. that strange. First of all, it's strange that it, this happened, that it just abruptly stopped. That's odd. And it's never happened again. Nope. Who did they report this to? Like, was this in the media? Yes, it was in the media. And they reported it to, like, the insurance company was involved. There was tons of people involved. 
and the insurance company didn't find any wrongdoing on their part, which would be hard to fool them. No, the water main was turned off. There was no negligence, but the the best part's when it follows them to grandma's house. That's very odd. Well, that's like the fire spook though, right? Right. It points to a manifestation. Wait, no. Did the fire spook follow? They didn't follow. No, them. it didn't. Right. Yeah, I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want you to look stupid. Well, and now Margot's going to be disgusted with me and you by extension. Her lawyer's going to call us like tomorrow morning. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Why does the legal system have to play to these types of scenarios, right? It always happens, Dan. All right. Your turn. My turn. All right. I am now going to a part of the world that you have ventured to, but I don't believe I've ever gone to. Well, we know it's not Ireland. Bhutan. <laughs> I should find the story from Bhutan. I thought you were serious. I was so excited. I should find one from Bhutan. I will find a story from Bhutan. The dancing season. spirit of Bhutan. Yeah. In our next season, I'll find a Bhutan, Bhutanese story. All right. This is no, no wait. What? Do you know what fascinates me though about Bhutan and makes it kind of a worthy addition to our cabinet of curiosities is that you have to get permission to go there, and nobody gets permission. Hey, it's a kingdom, right? It's not, there's not a government, right, uh, in place. And yeah, it's this really remote, very private place. Is it beautiful? And do they want it to be unspoiled? Is that why they don't want people there? I'm not sure. Probably, maybe that's part of it. I And I've not heard that it's like, a, it's not like North Korea where people are living in, in misery. In a completely other reality. Poverty. Yeah. Yeah. Here, let's look up Bhutan. I'm fascinated by Bhutan because it was when you told me that almost nobody gets to go there. So it's not like a tourist destination. You need a visa to get, to get in. But nobody gets one, you said. Well, it's just very rare. And I could be wrong. I'm not a Bhutanese expert. Oh my gosh, it's strikingly gorgeous. Mm-hmm. You have to look it up. Okay, I will, but not right now. Because it's very mountainous. It, it reminds me of like what you would think of uh, Nepal. Oh, okay. Okay, okay, like that. Yeah, cool. But these beautiful lakes and rivers. I wonder, it must be a, a, a Buddhist country. All right. Anyway, we're not going there, all right? Okay, okay. So leave the Bhutan stuff alone. I'm instead taking you to... Uh, another island, not the Emerald Isle, uh, Japan. We've only gone there a couple of times. I think, okay, so there was that, that SOS one. Yes. Did you do another one there? I don't think so. I think that was the only no, one. No, I think that's the only one. Yeah. That's still one of my favorite stories, that they went to find somebody and found somebody else. Well, this one has, it's not the same type of story, but it has that mysterious, dark, and there's something I, about Japanese stories that be really spooky like i think of some of the Mm -hmm. the horror movies and stuff that have come out of japan so this is about the old ununaki tunnel heard of it no but immediately when you say tunnel i get scared so the old ununaki tunnel and the village located nearby is said to be one of the three most haunted spots in japan oh so there's a, a a story that's connected to it a very famous story Uh, Sometime in the early 1970s, a young couple was driving up the slopes of the Unanaki Ridge and they were heading for Hisayama on the other side of the mountain. And to get there from Miyakawa, they had to pass a narrow road up the hill. Just before they got to the Unanaki Tunnel, a clunking sound was heard from the car. It was breaking down. And as they came out on the far side of the tunnel, the engine died and they found themselves stranded. They did, however, notice a passage on the right side of the road, a little dirt road. So they left their car and headed up 
the forest to seek help. After a short while, they came across a handwritten sign reading, the Constitution of Japan does not apply beyond this point. Oh. The trail was getting more difficult and overgrown as they continued, but a few hundred meters further in, they suddenly entered a small village. It was a town like they had never seen before. It seemed abandoned. The houses were all dark, dilapidated, and nobody could be seen from where they stood at the entrance of the town. The place seemed even devoid of any sounds from people or even animals. It was dead silent in this little town. Oh, that's spooky. The myth goes that the young couple was then approached by a villager, or this lone villager, who possessed sort of supernatural qualities. The way it was described, and you can see the story, is it's a very famous story in Japan. Uh, they see him from a distance and he waves hello and they wave hello back. And he says, you're welcome to the, the village. And they're like, oh, thank you so much. But we don't like saying goodbye to people. And and then he like all of a sudden, like within a few a few moments, like he takes these long gliding strides and he's like right there in front of them. Oh, that's so cinematic. Like, I think of like the ring, like, the, you know, and he's yeah. right there. And then he murders them. What? He murders them. That was not what I expected. In the story, he has this long skiff and he sighs the scythe. Scythe. He's another one of those words that I've always called it scythe. Scythe. Scythe? A sigh. A sigh or a scythe? Scythe. So he takes his scythe. Is that better? Yes. He takes his scythe. No, no, we have to discuss that you pronounced it skiff. It's like I said for the longest time, my son just corrected me. I would say chasm. Oh yeah, chasm. He's like, do you mean chasm? I'm like, yes. It's, I think it's okay to actually say chasm. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think it's okay. I've heard I've heard people say it who were learned. So he takes the the scythe and he he literally the, the way and again described he cuts the guy from head to groin in half. Oh. And then the girl tries to run away and he catches her and kills her. So the, 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 they're murdered in this village and apparently their white sedan still waits to this day, now covered with rust, the tire still punctured, parked just off the road by this small pathway, which leads into the forest and is now apparently completely overgrown. Oh dear. Okay. So the Unanaki village is supposedly situated somewhere around the Unanaki Ridge or Fukuoka Prefecture some 100 miles north of Nagasaki in Japan. Its continued existence is an open debate. Some locals insist that it is still there, but officially the town no longer exists. Uh Oh. It it has its name from Inu dog and Naki lamenting crying. The meaning could be howling dog, which connects to yet another legend, which is a man killed his dog because it wouldn't stop barking. Shortly after that, the man and his whole family were killed. The dog had just been warning his master about the approaching danger. Oh dear. Okay. Okay. The Unanaki village came to be during the early Edo period and persecuted and mistreated peasants chose to live in that village in exile and cut all bonds with society. This is historical. This is true. Okay. Okay. So it was like a place that that people who had given up on culture their their culture and society went and lived but they were outcasts okay 
Because when you first started talking about this particular story, that's where I thought you were going. I thought it was going to be when you said like the whatever of Japan doesn't apply here. I thought it was going to be, you know, those bullshit people that call themselves sovereign citizens. Yes. They're like, ah, the government doesn't apply to me and I do what I want when I want, except when I need medical assistance and then you have to pay those kind of people. So this is like an ancient version of that. Okay. But basically they're told that's fine. You can go live there, but you're on your own. You're not getting any help, any protection, anything. You're not, there's no trade. There's nothing. You're cut off from the rest of society. Right. Like literally cut off. No, there's no venturing from village to village. That's where you're going to live. It's kind of like house, like village arrest. Yeah, seriously. Okay. So eventually the village was ravaged by disease and the authorities like, like walled them off and prohibited anyone from entering or leaving the village, counting on everybody dying off in there before they could open it up again. They just wanted this place to go away, the the government officials. Mm -hmm. The isolated status of the town promoted inbreeding to a point where even simple human behavior and decency was abandoned. Oh my, it's like the hills have eyes. And there is another story where a, a, a man with a sickle, like a farmer, one day, for no reason, started attacking his fellow citizens and ended up actually killing everybody. And it's that character, that person that apparently waits for you in the village, his ghost, I guess, <laughs> with his sickle or his skitha, uh, waiting for new arrivals to come and that he can finish off. And he just suddenly appears in front of you. Mm-hmm. That was a striking image. And and, the, and and then there's the other layer to it is that, you know, anyone who enters that sanctuary... Uh, is murdered by a series of ghosts that haunt the village that don't want anyone to, to, to come in. There's tales about cannibalism coming out of that village as well, right? As people started to die, they started to eat each other. That makes sense. Uh, there, there was also uh, another line of thinking that there was, that was my son just coming downstairs. Okay. Did you hear that door popping open? Didn't hear it at all. So there was no need to bring it up. There's also, and it goes on and on with this village. There was also the idea that it was a leprosy colony. So there's some historical evidence to suggest that the the real reason why they were put in that in that village was because they all had leprosy. Right. That makes sense too. That was very common practice back then. Another interesting thing. So eventually this area is dammed up. So there's some thinking that where the actual village sat is now underwater. So you can't actually get to the village. We know that the village existed, but this is where the debate exists. Some believe, and the majority of people believe, it's underwater, so it's gone. Do you know what? There is nothing fascinates me more than villages that have been flooded to make dams. And there's so many pictures of different villages where you can see like a whole church under the water and just the Well, little, there's one near you. And the little steeple just pokes up above the water. I love that Lac St. Marie near you has that. There's Lac St. Marie. And if you look in the middle of the lake, there's a church steeple that pokes out of the water. I love that. It's so creepy. Creepy. It's so odd. I love it. I love it. So the whole area around Miyawaka is regarded as a very haunted terror. And I realize I'm butchering the pronunciation, I'm sure, of these uh, these places. I'm sure our Japanese listeners will forgive you. Yes, I'm sure they will. Uh, I hope so. So very haunted territory, the incredibly dense forests and difficult terrain make it an unforgiving area to venture into. 
The paths are narrow and can be tough to follow. The absence of houses and people gives the whole area a very spooky character. And the many myths and stories about strange sightings and scary encounters within the dark woodland attract all kinds of paranormal investigators, Mm -hmm. uh, YouTubers, TV shows have gone into the area, and teens that go in on dares. This is like the ultimate dare place if you live in that area of the country. Makes sense. Now, the modern hauntings that people have actually experienced are obviously not connected to the village because this has all sort of become myth and lore about the village, but are actually connected around the Unaki Pass and the tunnels passing under it. So they've tunneled into this mountain. Mm-hmm. There are two tunnels under the hill uh, that connect the two sides. One was built, well, the old one, the one that we're going to talk about, was built just after World War II. And it's only about 100 meters long. So it's not, you know, it's not a darker tunnel. You could see from end to end. And then the more modern one was built in actually 1975. It's heavily trafficked and has no ghost stories attached to it. But the theory being there that perhaps the ghosts are scared away by the trucks and other heavy vehicles. While working on the Unaki Tunnel Project, an accident caused the tunnel roof to collapse and it killed hundreds of workers. So the theory goes that that is the main source of the hauntings that take place in the tunnel. Well, that's going to generate a lot of psychic energy, right? There's a lot of abrupt end of life. Yeah. At nighttime, you can hear screams and children crying from within the tunnel. Oh, boy. Sometimes the voices call and implore you to follow them into the tunnel. And this has actually been recorded. So there have been like these shows where they've recorded these howls and screams mm-hmm. coming from the tunnel. There are also accounts of finger and handprints. I get this. This one freaks me out. There are also accounts of finger and handprints on the windshields and windows of cars that have passed through. So it's a very misty tunnel and you come out and there's like handprints and fingers where they kind of like were touching your car as you were going through the tunnel. Oh, I love that image. That's a beautiful image. So that tunnel has now been sealed You can no longer access it through your car, uh, but you can on foot go in on one side. And people who try to go in typically get the hell out right away. Right. Very bad vibes. No, there's been obviously other than the the recorded sounds, which could obviously be explained by howling wind and things like that. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. But it is no longer a functioning tunnel because it was deemed too uh, dangerous. Wow. Okay. That is the Unaki Tunnel and Village Mystery Bonanza. Okay, I have one thing to say here, Dan. That was an entire fucking episode. I thought we were going to do six to eight minutes. Jesus, Lord. That was 15. That was really long. That was 15. Okay. That's actually, just just so you know, that's my longest one. Okay, because that makes me feel inadequate. Now, the listeners are going to be, oh, Dan's amazing and Riley's a piece of shit. If we're doing two, if we're doing two, we're only at 42 minutes. Okay, I know. I know, but wow, that was, oh, that was great. That should have been a whole, well, it was a whole episode. Good for, good for you. Good for you. (laughs) No, it was only, it was only two pages. Well, it, uh, it felt like an eternity. It's because I, you know why? Because I wasn't reading off my script. Good. Okay, I want to see how well you know me. Okay, where, what do you think gave me my absolute fear of dark tunnels? I'll give you a clue. It's a book. Fear of dark tunnels. It's a book. Uh, is it Stephen King? Yes. Okay, dark tunnels. Oh, uh, is it The Gunslinger? 
with the tunnel at the beginning when he when he goes into the tunnel and no, it's the stand when they have to go under the tunnel. Oh. Do you remember that? incredible writing yes well it's similar to the gunslinger yeah, they have to go through the tunnel under the hudson river and it's and there's all the cars are full of dead bodies and it's just i remember mm-hmm. sitting there i don't think i blinked for 20 minutes when i read that mm-hmm. stephen king should pay us royalties he really should because we plug him a lot okay enough about him that was great i want to go there I don't. Well, I do and I don't. I love the guy with the scythe, just sort of, you see him from a distance, then suddenly he's right in front of you and chops you right in half. Well, and I, I, I know that that was a longer one, but I do want to say, like, as a kid growing up with a forest as my backyard, mm-hmm. there were runes in that forest. And I found that so freaking eerie. In fact, we just, we t- I took my kids for a walk in those same woods this um, this fall, and we I found runes that I had never discovered in the heart of the woods, off the beaten path, a well, this giant well. I'm like, where? Like, I never saw this before. Wells are so unsettling. Oh, it's weird. And you know that if you, and it's like not protected, right? Like it easily could have fallen into the well. The weirdest thing I've ever come across in the woods that was unexpected was Bonnie, who used to be on the show at the very beginning. Yes. uh, And I were out geocaching. There was a couple of years where I was heavily into geocaching, which is, you know, use your GPS to find something in the woods. Mm -hmm. And we were in a kind of very dense forested area and we came across an abandoned campsite. And the tent was there. It had collapsed. There was a backpack full of stuff. There was a pair of shoes. Like there was everything that would have been at the campsite. It looked like whoever had been there had just split. And it was obviously had been that way for months. And it freaked me out. Oh my. Freaked me right out. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. It was just both Bonnie and I were really like, this is creepy. We need to leave. Yeah. I loved that story. I have a one that touches on Japan coming up. Okay, good. All right. So this is a tunnel one. Is this another tunnel one? Oh, this is you were that was a reference to my story when you were talking yes, about this. Yes, this one, the next one I have for you is about an incredible coincidence. I know it sounds lame, but this is a really good one. You'll like it because there's history. It's better not because I'm doing one about an incredible coincidence. Watch this. We're finally going to do it. We're going to do it. That would be hilarious. Okay, it's July 1900. No, we're not. Okay, Okay, good. good. And the king of Italy, a gentleman named Umberto I, has just arrived in the town of Monza. And Monza is situated a few miles just outside of Milan. The beautiful, beautiful Milan, which I've been to. Mm -hmm. That's where all the Vogues are. Why are you rubbing your chest as you talk about Milan? Oh, Because Milan makes me think of my nipples. What do you think? I'm itchy. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, um, anyway, uh, Milan is beautiful. I've been there and it's just gorgeous because that's where the Vogues are. It's the fashion heart of Italy. The gelato, everything about Milan is beautiful. Anyway, so he has come to Monza. He's giving out prizes because there's a big athletic competition happening in that community. The night before the event is supposed to happen, because they've already arrived, the king and his entourage, and in particular his right-hand man, so I guess we'll call him his chief of staff, they go to a small restaurant um, off the beaten path because they want to have a quiet supper. And when they walk in, they are blown away to see that the owner of that restaurant is a doppelganger, the spitting image of the king himself. They look identical in every single way. The king is so staggered by the resemblance that he asks the man to join them for dinner, which he agrees to do because it's his restaurant. He can do whatever the hell he wants. 
and as they talk, they are both stunned at how parallel their lives have been up until the day that they've just met. They had both been born on the same day, which was March, March the 14th, 1844, in the same town. They were both named Umberto. They had both been married on April the 22nd, 1868, and oh, weird. both of their wives were named Margarita. Weird. They both had a son named Vittorio. And on the, the the day of the king's coronation as as king was the day that that Umberto had opened his restaurant. So the biggest milestones in their lives, in terms of professional lives, had both occurred on the same day. So weird. As they continued to talk, they both discovered they had been in the war together. I don't know which war, Dan. I'm sorry. I knew, I, I'm knew. i already trying to... I'm guessing you're going to ask me that, so I don't know which war it was, because 1900, right? No, I'm just going to assume that you won't know. Well, I did, didn't mention in any of the stuff that I read about. Okay, so they discover when they're... T- oh, you're going to look it up. Ticka, 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 typing, Dan. Ticka, 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 typing, Dan. If he can't find it, no one can. It's ticka, ticka, typing, Dan. Well, they did fight in Somalia in 1890. So it's possible that that was where they were fighting. They were fighting in Africa a lot at that time. So let's just say they were fighting somewhere. Anyway, they both discovered that they had been involved in military conflicts and had both been rewarded for bravery together on the same day twice. So they had both been rewarded for bravery twice on the same days both times. Interesting. Weird. Like, that makes no sense, right? So the king told his aide, his chief of staff, that this was too remarkable to overlook, that it had to be marked somehow. So he told this guy that he wanted to make the restaurant owner, Umberto, a cavalier of the crown of Italy. And the king was known to be very just and a man of his word. So the next day, Mm -hmm. he asked that the restaurant owner be brought to see him. Well, he was shocked and devastated to learn that the restaurant owner, Umberto, had been killed a few hours earlier in a shooting accident. Oh. He was devastated. And later that day, three shots rang out at the athletic event and King Umberto I was killed. Oh my God. By an assassin. What? Yeah. They both died on the same day in completely unrelated events. It's a good one, eh? Oh my God. I know. Okay. I'm rearranging my the order of my stories because and mine's literally going to take less than a minute to tell you. Mm-hmm. I, and this is what's weird is that this is not even uncommon, I guess. Because the story I was going to tell you was about Patrick and Eleanor Grady. So on July 27th, 1700, Patrick and Eleanor Grady were born in the same house in Crookhaven County. Oh, you've Clark. got to slow down. Slow down. You're so excited. You're talking fast. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, so 1700, brother and sister born slow the down. Same, <laughs> same day. Same house in Crookhaven County, Cork. Oh, God. But where, where, where is County Cork? I've never heard of this country. County Cork's in Ireland. Of course it is. I'm making fun of you. Oh, dummy. They married on the same day, and then 96 years later, they both took ill and died on the same day, leaving a total of 96 descendants. 96? These were Catholics. Pro- yeah. Cork, you would have been a Catholic. Wow. So that's my, but again, this weird simpatico, everything lined up, not as 
crazy as your story, though. The same wife's name, the same first name, the same son. I feel like I've heard that one before. Like, that seems like when you were starting to say, I'm like, Geez, I feel like maybe I've heard it, but I didn't know that, like, I was actually shocked. I was like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's that's too bad the guy died. And then you, the king's killed too he that day. He assassinated later like, that day. Wow. Because that that's what's weird about this one. Okay, okay, their brother and sister, they're born on the same day. And then, oh, they get married. on the, But then the fact that they also died on the same day, living separately in two separate illnesses. Oh, it's weird. I, I love those coincidence lines. I, I imagine that day that the uh, king found out that the restaurateur had been killed. I wonder if he raised a brow and went, oh, no. You know, I would have, I think. I thought maybe you were going to say, too, that he um, looked the same. Like it was like the man in the iron mask type thing where they were actually separated at birth. No, they did look the same. Identical. They did look the same? I said it at the beginning. That's why he talked to the guy. Right. You did say that. Of course. That's so weird. It's like the Matrix is getting I know, crazy. right? You know, he walked into the restaurant and they both went, what What the fuck? That's right. You did say yeah, that. Because yeah. if it had been farther back in the day, I'm sure he would have been hired by the court to impersonate the king. Such a short story. But my God, that's just messed up. <laughs> no, it's funny, eh? I know. I, I, I loved so it. so weird. The, 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 the two people in County Cork. Uh, that honestly, I love, I loved that like a lot. This is so much fun. Right. And you see what I did there though. Like that story I, I was saving for later just as a quick, it was short. Yes. All right. Let's get back. Okay. It's your turn. I think. No, it's my turn. Oh yeah. Cause I can, we can say that Patrick and Eleanor, that's right. So it's me again. It's, it's me you again, again because I, I did, I interjected with a mini story. But Patrick and Eleanor. Do you know what I was thinking too? Our listeners are going to be very happy because we didn't break when everybody else did. Every single podcast in the world is off now. They're all on break except for us. We literally are the only podcast in the world running. Well, it feels like it because all my podcasts are all on Christmas break. And just so everybody knows, today is the 27th, December 27th. We just came through Christmas. So Dan and I are sitting in our comfortable, warm, Christmassy homes and just enjoying each other's company. Okay, Dan, we're going sort of to Japan by the way of the Philippines, by way of the Philippines. And I'm going to tell you, I I titled this one. And I think as soon as I say the title, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Okay. War is over. Okay. You're talking about the war being over. Yes. In 1972, a Japanese soldier named Shochi Yokoi was caught by fishermen on the island of Guam in the Philippines. And he had actually attacked those fishermen, whom he believed were a physical threat to him. He had been hidden there for 28 years since U.S. troops had landed in 1944. The original unit that he had been part of, uh, Shochi had been part of, had consisted of nine soldiers, but all of the others had either surrendered or died. In 1952, Shochi had actually seen a leaflet that were actually distributed by air on these islands. It had floated down and he had read it and it was in Japanese and it declared that Japan had surrendered and that the conflict was over. However, and he stated, and I quote, We Japanese soldiers were told to prefer death to the disgrace of getting captured alive. Mm -hmm. Did you notice there that I avoided going for a uh, a stereotypical Asian voice, right? Yeah, because then I would have been off the air. 
Yep. <laughs> he was in um he was in very good health, but he was slightly anemic due to the lack of salt that had been in his diet. Mm. And he had survived for twenty eight fucking years on insane wild nuts, mango, papaya, shrimp, snails, mm. frogs, and the occasional rat. Okay. Two years later, in 1974, Lieutenant Hiru Unoda was also found on a Philippine island named Lubang. He had been there in hiding for 29 years. He had been hiding there with three other soldiers of his unit. But these guys were great because they had been conducting guerrilla-like activities in that area in which they were hiding the whole time. And they were constantly involved in shootouts with local police and in skirmishes with the people who lived on the island. What? Yeah, they'd, he'd, they'd go and burn down their huts. They'd go steal because oh they thought the war was still on. So over the course of the later years, one of them had surrender and the remain the remaining two had been shot. So he was there by himself, and they too had seen several leaflets that had been distributed by air stating very firmly that the war had ended. But they had all discussed it and decided that this information was false and that it was actually a a tool of manipulation to get them to surrender. Mm -hmm. Hero stated that he had remained in hiding because he had not received any official orders to do otherwise. You know what? And I read about this too. The Japanese government actually regrets that in the leaflets, they didn't actually issue an order saying the government orders you to stand down because a lot of these soldiers said, well, we weren't given an order. Mm -hmm. So he was found on February the 20th, 1974 by a Japanese man named Norio Suzuki. And he had actually been looking for him. Yeah, and he had um, embarked on a mission to find, in the following order, Lieutenant Onoda, which is Hiru, a panda, and the abominable snowman. So he was trying to find these three missing things. Suzuki had found Onoda after just four days of searching for him. However, Hiru, Onoda, would not surrender and leave the jungle. So Suzuki had to take pictures of himself standing there with Onada and send them to Japan. And then Onada's former commanding officer, a guy named Major Yoshimi Taniguchi, who now worked as a bookstore owner, had to go to Lubang Island in the Philippines. And on March the 9th, 1974, he was reunited with Onoda and verbally issued the following orders. In accordance with the Imperial Command, the 14th Area Army has ceased all combat activity. In accordance with Military Headquarters Command Number A-2003, the Special Squadron of Staff's Headquarters is relieved of all military duties. And at that point, Hiru surrendered. He turned over to his former commander, his sword, 500 rounds of live ammunition that he had been saving just in case, and a number of unused hand grenades. For him, the war was finally over. And I should note, when both of these Japanese gentlemen returned to Japan, they were treated as heroes and were given the highest military honors. I wonder what their life was like when they finally did go. I know. They lived very quiet lives away from public scrutiny. 
Well, they, my God, you're out of society for 30 years, like 28 years and 29 years in hiding. I heard that. I've heard that story before, not in the detail that you provided, but I actually was from another podcast, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. He started his Supernova in the East talking about the, one of the two guys that you mentioned, I think it's the last one because he did mention that they needed to send a military officer to relieve him. He wouldn't, yeah, he wouldn't leave. The military, this guy who was no longer even in the military, he owned a bookstore, had to go and say, okay, you're relieved. Imagine the the loyalty, the fierce honor that those people uh, inhabit. I know. Within themselves to be that committed. One of them, I believe it's Hiru, also had in his possession a dagger that had been given to him by his wife because they were told that they weren't to be captured alive. Yeah, and that was a very common, that was what made the Japanese so fierce because they wouldn't, they wouldn't surrender or many of them wouldn't surrender. Yeah. And even like the, the uh, kamikazes, right? They were committing suicide, flying these planes into boats to try to sink them. Very disciplined military force, Dan. Extreme. Very disciplined. Great story. I like that. I was out of left field. I, uh, yeah. And it. I, when I came across that one, I'm like, it's so sad and they're so cute. I wonder, were their wives alive? That would have been really nice if their wives. If, if they had wives. You know what my favorite one was, though? I love the guys that like were gorillas. They were just kept kept hitting that island, you know, stealing and blowing shit up. And Well, that sounds like it would have been like a, a sitcom in the 70s or 80s. Yeah. Like Hogan's yeah, Heroes. Yeah. No, really. Thing. Yeah. No, it's, it's very, it's very amusing. Well, not amusing, but fascinating in a yeah, fascinating. kind of amusing way. That's all I have about that. All right. Well, I'm going to uh, change gears here. You can see my hand. That's me. It's the international sign of the gear change. I'm going to change gear three. We're in gear three here. Okay. Uh, This is, do you remember the movie with Ralph Macchio, Crossroads? No, I've only ever seen him in Karate Kid. So it was a movie in the 80s that I loved. Uh, and Ralph Macho is this uh, Juilliard-trained guitar player, and he wants to take his guitar playing to the next level, and he encounters the devil, and he makes a deal with the devil uh, that if um, he can beat the devil's guitarist, he, he can become the world's greatest guitar player, but if he loses, the devil gets his soul. Well, isn't that the Charlie Daniels band, The Devil Went Down to Georgia? Well, that's based off of Robert Johnson. That's what that movie is referencing, is the blues musician Robert Johnson, who the legend goes, sold his soul to the devil to become the world's greatest bluesman. Okay. So one night at a Mississippi juke joint in 1930, Sun House and Willie Brown played their infamous Delta Blues tunes to a packed house. During the intermission, a young, bright-eyed, 19-year-old Robert Johnson conjured up the courage to take hold of the musician's instruments and show the crowd what he had to his surprise the crowd didn't care much for his performance oh dear he was terrible oh boy even sunhouse who is apparently a very kind man and 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 robert johnson idolized this guy admitted that his guitar playing was severely below par and that he was a better harmonica player if that so not a lot of musical ability. Okay. So you can imagine this bright-eyed kid who thinks, you know, he's probably been practicing on his own. Yeah. Who thinks that he's going to join these guys, maybe be swept up and invited to play with them, and he bombs completely. Oh, oh God. Oh, God. I feel bad for him. I really do. Following these events, Robert Johnson disappeared. Oh. 
for approximately three years. No one knew where he went. His family didn't know. He just was gone. And, you know, obviously people were thinking potentially the worst, right? Yes. He was so shattered. Perhaps he had ended his life. So what was weird though, is so he's gone for three years, but then all of a sudden he makes an appearance again on stage. But this time he has mastered the blues. So in three years time, he goes from not really being able to play, disappearing, making this magical return, and he is the best anyone's ever heard. Okay. So this came, obviously, as a surprise to those that knew him before his disappearance. But folks began to discredit his talents with the story and the myth. And the most famous story that many people recognize today is that he sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads of highways 49 and 61. To support these theories of Robert Johnson, the songs he did record complemented these tales quite well. A few of his titles included Hell Hound on My Trail, Crossroad Blues, Up Jumped the Devil, and Me and the Devil Blues. Although Robert Johnson is credited with being the first musician to bargain with the devil, it actually began with a guy named Tommy Johnson, a musician with no relation to Robert Johnson. Uh, And a relative of Tommy's recalls his stories as such. And this is a quote. You go to where a road crosses that way, where a crossroads is, get there. Be sure to get there just a little before 12 o'clock that night so you'll know you'll be there. You have your guitar and be playing a piece there by yourself. And then... A big black man will walk up there and take your guitar and he'll tune it and then he'll play a piece and he'll hand it back to you. That's the way I learned to play anything I want. This is a commonly held belief in that part of the world, in that community, that if you do this, if you're willing to sell your soul, you'll be given material things. I think I have to mention here as well, and I've mentioned it before um, in some of the episodes we've done that touched on voodoo. In voodoo, one of the most powerful locations that you can go to is the crossroads. Yeah. And they refer to them as the Carrefour, which is the French word for crossroads, but that's where they have meetings and masses and rituals. So the crossroads is an incredibly powerful uh, spiritual force in those belief systems. Yeah. Yeah, you have brought that up because I remember bringing up the crossroads and you're like, what? Yeah, uh, yeah, neat, right? And it makes sense with this demographic that, that those beliefs and that those cultural pieces would, would have carried through with them. So the only difference between Robert Johnson's story and Tommy Johnson's account was the age at which they died. After a career that lasted him just over five years, Robert Johnson died at the age of 27, oh. whereas Tommy lived well into his 60s. And I need to say too, that while he was prolific and he really is prolific, there are recordings of Robert Johnson's work. Mm -hmm. He never gained any monetary uh, success. He was not rich and famous. It wasn't until the 1960s that people like Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton discovered these recordings and were completely blown away by what he was able to do with his guitar. Phenomenal stuff. As well, in the case of Robert Johnson, many family members have come forward to dispel these rumors and have advocated that the truth be told about Robert Johnson. During the time that he was missing, they argue or say that Johnson actually returned home where he ran into a man named Ike Zimmerman. It was Zimmerman who took Johnson under his wing and from years of practicing, Johnson became the legendary blues musician that we know today. 
And that is the story of Robert Johnson. I like that. And that's a, a very famous cultural archetype, right? Yeah. And probably probably not true that he was sold his soul. A, a tragic story, though, that someone so gifted yeah. wasn't able to share that long for very long, right? Yeah. Mm. You know, it reminds me of one of my favorite poems, which goes like this. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sawing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. There you go. Is that Billy Ray Cyrus? No, that's a little bit of the Devil Went Down to Georgia by the Charlie Daniels Band. Not Billy Ray Cyrus. Didn't he just have achy, breaky heart? Oh, that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, with that mullet, that insane mullet. Don't break my heart, my achy, breaky heart. Don't think you'll understand if you break my heart, my achy, breaky heart. I'm going to have to buy a boatload of fans. And if you know my account, my dirty bank account, you'll know that I can't buy that many fans. And here we go. Into Looneyville. One-way tickets. No return. My wife will get mad at me. She's always cross, you see. Because I buy things like dirty fans. Oh, God. Well, if, if you can't beat them, join them. I went out in the woods and I saw a squawking bird. And I took that bird and I brought it home. I fed it a bunch of chicken bones. I beat it to death with a sharpened stone. That bird went in my belly. There, I just made shit up, too. What I think is sad is that you're actually a professional musician. Yeah. <laughs> oh lord okay all I right like that all i right. like i love the idea of, of the deal with the devil i think the red shoes the famous movie from the 1940s is a bit like that too oh I'd you like wear to the red that. shoes and it'll make you an amazing dancer oh and you remember there was a, a variation of that in bugs bunny which is the wearing of the green shoes oh yes i do remember it was that. a leprechaun because he tried to steal his pot of gold and then he's like i sentence you to the wearing of the green shoes yes yeah. yes okay i've got a monster story for you Ooh. and this is i'm gonna butcher this too the monster of the Great. ubangi congo basin and this is again a reader's digest one. yeah well it was this is where i first read about all- it but it's more evolved i didn't use that as my sole source of information because those are very brief little they're like maybe 20 lines right. there is a monster known as the mokeli membe that exists in the swamps of the ubangi congo basin which is located in central africa this monster is one of the most famous in the world. It's second only to the Loch Ness Monster. Mm. It is described as half elephant and half dragon. And there have been several former reports of the creature dating back as far as the 1800s when we first started to document stuff like this. But it exists in the local folklore far, far longer than that. Okay. In 1980... Roy Mackle and James Powell Jr., and James Powell Jr. was a doctor. He was a crocodile specialist. Imagine, I just imagine going to university and people asking, well, what's your PhD in uh, crocodiles? That's cool. So that was his specialty. He knew everything he needed to know about crocodiles. They put together an expedition to go in search of the famous Mokele. I think it's Mokele Bembe. Mokele Bembe. Let's just say that. Mokele Bembe. <laughs> 
I can't say it. I have the wrong articulation. I'm Mark Kelly Henderson. I'm so North American. Mokeli Membe, okay? So they arrived at the location in February of 1980, and they were at first horrified by what lay before them. It was all swamps and really dense, untamed jungle. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're in, we're in Central Africa. The two men had hired locals to serve as their porters, and so they put together a little group, and they spent the next month making the arduous journey through this incredible, difficult terrain. So just think of Frodo and Sam trying to get to Mordor. It was like that. It was just swamp and jungle and fatigue and extreme heat. It was an abysmal journey. Yeah. But one benefit to the journey is that throughout, they kept meeting different people, different villages, different communities. And at those communities, they heard eyewitness accounts of the creature that they were looking for. One local who had seen the creature described it as having a reddish-brown snake-like head attached to an eight-foot-long articulated neck. All the witnesses had uniformly stated that the creature was about 35 feet long. Oh, so big guy. A big bus. It is believed that it lived off elephants, hippos, and crocodiles. So that was oh its natural prey. The locals also firmly believed that eating the flesh of that creature would result in death. So they would not consume the creature if they found a carcass. Mm. Okay. Now, unfortunately, and I kind of predicted this, the expedition never found the creature. All it found was a lot of tales about the creature, but both men remained convinced that the creature, Mokele Membe, did indeed exist. And there, there were just too many eyewitnesses. Everywhere they went, people had stories of the creature. So Mackle, not the crocodile expert, the other guy, returned to Africa in 1981. And the purpose of that trip was to conduct a six-week search for the creature. And he was accompanied this time by French, American, and Congolese scientists. And one day, they came across a huge swath of flattened vegetation. They followed it, and then they found huge footprints in the mud that led to a nearby river. The footprints were foreign to them and matched no species they had ever seen before. And the footprints were similar in size to those of an elephant. It's the only other species that had footprints that... Did they take big. a cast of it? Like, did they... There's tons of okay, pictures of okay, it. Okay, okay, good. And in 1992... A Japanese expedition, which was uh, which had been put together to find Mokele Membe, got footage of a giant shape actually parting the waters of an African lake. And some say, if you look closely at that footage, the head of the creature is clearly visible. But you can see this huge dark shape going underneath the waters of the lake. Mm. And those are the two closest encounters that anybody has had to Mokele Membe. But everybody in that Congo Basin region of Central Africa knows of this creature and insists that it exists. And everybody knows someone who's actually seen it. To this day, there are many expeditions that go into that particular area to try to find the creature and so the search is ongoing they need to give everyone in those villages a smartphone and a camera well with the camera so that they can record what they what they exactly see. i you know and these ones i actually think that there is something to it i will side on the indigenous peoples of a land who have the those oral histories are important yes they are uh especially if these aren't people that are 
you know, seeing a crocodile and thinking they don't know what it is. And so they make up, they know the difference between a hippopotamus and an elephant Mm -hmm. and a crocodile and an anaconda. And so the fact that they're saying, no, no, this thing does exist. Mm -hmm. It's rare, maybe endangered, maybe it's dead by now, but it does exist. I tend to want to believe that. Me too. It could just be a species we're not familiar with. I should note too, that in my research that I did discover that these particular communities are not notoriously superstitious. Mm. They're very practical people. Interesting. So I wonder what the Mukale Membe is. So they're not they're not saying that it's like a spirit like in you know, Nepal and, and China and places like that, the Yeti has spiritual significance, but this isn't. It's just a weird it's just animal. A big weird animal that everybody avoids, but a lot of people have sworn they've seen or knew somebody who had seen it. Yeah, and not people looking for media attention because no. that's not really a thing. Where and it is one of the most documented of those types of creatures. Like you know, Opiongo was like that. Loch Ness, those monsters. It's yeah. one of the most documented, and there are so many witness statements that describe the same animal. You almost wonder then if it's like a prehistoric holdover that's just managed to like a small small family of these things has been allowed to well, live. Exactly, right? I mean, there's still stuff out there we don't know about. You know what I love? I mm-hmm. love whenever they find like weird cave systems or weird jungles that they've never discovered before and all of a sudden there's a whole shitload of new species that they that we just have never been confronted with. I love mm-hmm. that. They go into these caves and are like, what spider is this? We've never seen it. That part of the world too is so fascinating. I've loved that part of the world ever since reading Heart of darkness in high school which i was one of the kids that actually really enjoyed it i thought it was so dark and creepy and mysterious and short yeah it was a relatively short novel right 200 pages or something to this day that's such a pristine part of the world that has not been you know overrun by industrialization and urbanization it's still vast jungle untamed wilderness and i find that so intriguing and and exciting and fascinating yeah it's true i think the coastal areas of africa are the ones that have been really raped by Mm -hmm. people from other countries i think that central africa especially that area is pretty untouched which is good so there that's the story of this mysterious uh, monster that i hadn't heard of before And like I said, people are still looking. And now I'm going to toss the ball to you. And I try to catch it and it fell. And hold on. Let me pick it. It's just down here. Damn it. It's gone into the table. Okay. Got the ball. Got the ball, Riley. It's in my hands. I'm just going to toss. Oh, geez. It fell. Hold on. This this could go on for quite a while, dear listeners. So um, just patiently wait. Riley, I'm just going to place the ball on the table here so I don't I don't drop. Ah, oh, damn it. I just... Okay. God. It's on the floor and I'm leaving. <laughs> Welcome to the Lucille Ball Show, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, my God. Okay. This next story, I believe, Riley, is the first that takes us to a country where we do have some uh, listenership from and a place I've always wanted to go sweden oh sweden there's so much about sweden i love me too all right so this is about the vicarage of borg vatnet which apparently is the most haunted house in sweden oh good all right so in the deep forest of and i think i'm pronouncing this right yamt land it's like jam land but i think that the j is a yeah like a yaw sound stands a lonely vicarage. 
At first glance, this old country house is actually quite pretty to look at. If you look it up online, you'll see it looks like something, you know, it's got a, a its exterior is warm and inviting and seems like a place one would want to visit and stay in. It looks like a nice cottage, you know. However, it has a dark past that has earned it the honor of being Sweden's most notorious haunted house and one of the most haunted places in the world. Ooh, I'm all a quiver. I'm going into your territory because you usually do the haunted houses. I'm obsessed with them. So the fragile wooden walls and creaking floors have, for over 100 years, been the scene of tragic events and paranormal activity. Mm. More than 250 years ago, can you hear my children not yelling? At all. I don't know how you're not hearing it because they're like shouting as they play Fortnite. Well, five minutes ago, my dog was upstairs just laying into that squeaky toy for all these words. Okay. So we're on even ground here. So more than 250 years ago, the first inhabitants of what would eventually come to be the small town of Borgvatnet moved to the area. As with most new towns at that time, a church was one of the first structures to be built. For any priest who decided to take a job at a church, it was custom to get a small farm or piece of land to live on and cultivate, which is how Borgvatnet's vicarage was built. In the year 1876, the first priest of Borgvatnet moved into the vicarage. A total of 15 priests would come to live here before the last one had finally had enough of the ghostly activities and decided to move out with no other priest willing to take over. Oh dear, so something's up. What came to be the final straw is one of the most famous ghost stories from the house and in Sweden. Although the first reports of hauntings at the vicarage were made by a priest in 1927, it wasn't until the last priest of Borgvadnet, Eric Lindgren, moved into the vicarage in 1945 that it became publicly known that the grounds were haunted. During a meeting held by Jamtland County Agricultural Society in December of 1947, a journalist from a local newspaper had caught on to the rumors of the haunted vicarage in town and bluntly asked Eric Lindgren about his experiences. Not only had Eric documented his experiences, but he was also willing to go public with them. According to Lindgren, one of the most haunting experiences he had while living there was when he was suddenly thrown off his rocking chair one night by an unknown force and he ended up on the floor. And according to Lindgren's notes, from that point forward, he was never able to sit in the chair again without being immediately thrown off. Oh my God. Weird, That eh? is wild. Soon, the stories of Borkvatnet would become a national sensation. After all the publicity, previous priests and guests who had spent the night in the house started coming forward with their own stories. Since ghosts or paranormal activity are not favorably looked upon in the Christian religion, there would have been plenty of reason for priests to not want to open up about their paranormal experiences. Right. One priest, though, would recall a time when he saw a gray-clad lady appear in the corner of the room he was sitting in. And she walked slowly towards him, only to very at the last minute suddenly change direction and walk into another room. He got up, followed her, went into that other room and realized that there was no one in the room at all. So he thought like it was a woman mm -hmm. that was there and there was no one to be found. Right. This one's unsettling. A visitor who spent the night, uh, and I should note now that you can stay there. Like it's like a bed and breakfast. Aren't they all? They all right? are. Yeah. It's the way it is. So a visitor, yeah, they yep. make money. But apparently it's it's a place that people, it's, you go there to have a ghost mm -hmm. experience. Okay. I'd go. 
A visit. I yeah, I would too. I'm, especially if it meant I could go to yeah. Sweden. A visitor who spent the night in a room now known as the Weeping Lady's Room would recall waking up in the middle of the night to the feeling of being watched. As she sat up, she saw three figures sitting on a sofa, staring right back at her. According to this guest, she tried to wake herself up. She pinched herself. She even set her alarm clock off just to see if, like, she was so sure she must be dreaming, but nothing worked. But she was convinced it was a nightmare realize she's not having it with increasing dread. She realizes I'm actually awake. I'm actually experiencing this. And these women are actually staring at me from across the room. And then they disappear. That's just terrifying. Yeah. That's just so off putting. No one really knows how these hauntings began, but the most accepted story is that one of the first priests to live at Borg Vagnet had a sexual relationship with a young local girl. It is not clear whether this was a consensual relationship or if she was raped. When learning that the 19-year-old girl was pregnant, the priest apparently locked her up in an enclosure in the backyard. And it was also in this same backyard that the girl would eventually bury her child right after killing her. Oh, no. It's not clear whether the young girl made it out alive or if she ended up meeting the same fate as her child. And it's not clear whether she killed the child or whether... The priest killed the child. So regardless of whether you believe in ghosts or not, one thing is for sure. It takes as much courage, apparently, to spend the night in Sweden's most haunted location today as it did a hundred years ago. Oh, wow. Oh, there's so much more probably to that. I love it. Oh, I I, I could have gone a little bit longer on I it. I love that it's a vicarage. It's a vicarage. That's so unusual. The, the accounts are, are similar, yeah. right? People watching, people crying, a woman crying. It's often a woman that people are seeing and, uh, and, and angry spirits. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I love a good haunted house. If it's her, right, she might have had it out for the priest. Well, absolutely. She's got, uh, she's got a, a vendetta to settle. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I'm going to look that one up. I want to see what it looks like. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's not creepy on the outside. It looks really okay. pretty. But inside, uh, there's... Dark manifestations. It's kind of like you. You're very pretty no, on the I'm outside. Not. I look like a sucked out old bag. And on the inside, you are you're very dark and sinister and filled with hidden secrets. It's the other way around. On the outside, you're you you're you're filled with hidden secrets, and on the inside, you're polished and like pretty. a stone, like a rare diamond, like a big yellow diamond from the Mirni mine. What the hell That's is that? That's my dog playing with his squeaky toy. Yeah, um, he's. He's adopted the squeaky toy as his voice. And when you're not paying enough attention to him, he grabs the squeaky toy and lays onto it. I love yeah, it. So yeah. it's like having an infant in the house, but it also makes me laugh. My dog does the but same thing. Yeah, it's very funny. Yeah, it sounds like some yeah. weird trumpet music upstairs. That's, that's yeah, that's my dog with the squeaky toy. I love that. Is this your last no, story? I have two more. Okay. And okay. guess what, Dan? My next story is about a haunted house. Oh, man. That's crazy. I know, what a coincidence. Seriously. I'm going to tell you about the haunting of Belachian House. The what house? I'm not pronouncing it right. I know it. It's in Scotland. Okay. In 1876, a man named Stuart, just like me, died at his house in Scotland. And the property that he died on was called Belachian House. It's B-A-L-L-E-C-H-I-N. 
Belechin. Belechin. I'll just say Belechin. Now, he had lived in that house for 40... Belechin. Belechin house. Okay. He had lived in that house for a little more than 40 years, and he was known for being very eccentric. And he was also known to believe in the paranormal and, more specifically, ghosts. One of his passions, and his biggest passion, was his dogs. He owned 14 dogs. Now, that's, it's not unusual, though. If you've ever been to Scotland farm country or any of those areas, it's not unusual to have a lot of dogs. A lot of people do because they're working dogs, right? You have yeah. the, 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 the herds of sheep that need to be tended. It's yes. not unusual. Oh, so after he died, after having lived in that house for more than 40 years, his family swooped in and had all of the dogs destroyed. 14 of them in total, these beloved animals were destroyed. This would prove to be a very big mistake. After his death, his nephew, a guy named John Skinner, and his wife moved into the property very quickly. And one day, while she was doing some random bookkeeping, his wife smelled the distinct odor of wet dog. And you and I are both dog owners, so we know exactly what that smells like. Yeah. And an invisible force then pushed against her thigh. Mm-hmm. Oh. In the coming months, these little moments turned into a full-blown haunting experience. It was ghostly knockings, explosions, and voices were heard throughout the house. This was mostly, though, an oral haunting, like A-U-R-A-L, not O-R-A-L. So most mm-hmm. of the manifestations were sound-based. Mm-hmm. And rumors began to circulate that Belachin House or Balachin House was indeed very much haunted. Later that year, the nephew who had inherited the property was abruptly killed by a London taxi while he was in that city. So, a man named Captain Stewart, Captain Stewart, then acquired the property and proceeded to rent it out. Now, it was a beautiful estate with huge amounts of game. So there were rabbits, there was all kinds of game, and hunting was a very big thing still back then. So the property was rented very quickly. However, the new tenants were constantly pushed and sniffed and terrified by unseen spirit animals. And the new tenants were so put off by these experiments. What are you doing? Ooh, I'm just telling my wife to quiet the kids because they're like yelling and they're they're distracting me. So the new tenants could not take it. They only lasted a few weeks before they moved out and they actually forfeited the remainder of their rent money. They didn't care. Wow. They didn't care. They were just like, we want out. We can't take it. We're constantly being jostled and hit. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, gosh, oh man. And what year is that? This is still like 1890s ish. It's around the turn of the century because 18, 1876 is when he died. Yeah. So, we're very close. So, again, not like this is not Amityville where they're doing this for publicity. Not at all. Yeah. So, a gentleman named the Marquis de Boot. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say it without laughing. The Marquis de Boot. It's B U T E. Boot. Boot. Boote. Boote. Learned of the paranormal events that had been plaguing Belichin House or Balichin House. 
and he decided he would launch an investigation. He was a member of the famous, and we've mentioned these people before, the Psychical Research Society of England. He up and rented the house with other members of the Psychical Research Society in order to conduct a hands-on investigation of the phenomena. Now, one of the individuals involved in this was a woman named Ada Goodrich Freer, but she went by the title of Miss X. (laughs) I know she sounds like a dominatrix. Who would you like tonight? Oh, I think I'd like Miss X. Ooh. (laughs) So uh, they gathered, the Psychical Research Society members gathered about 35 guests under the auspices of a house party. And it was one of those house parties that you would have in London, in, in not London, English society where I had to research this. But back in the day, if you had a house party, it would be understood that the guests would stay over. So you would have a big party at the night during the evening, they would arrive and they would take shelter in your house overnight. And then you would provide them with a meal and then they would go on their way because a lot of these estates were remote locations. Yes, right. That would make a lot of sense. And they don't have cars. Now, the guests were not informed of the property's reputation at all. And they tried to make sure that the people coming didn't know anything about it, which I think is kind of shitty. But anyway. But it's there's a scientific maybe thinking, because that society does try to be scientific in their investigations, right? There's a, a, his, there's a history of them trying to be honest about their exploration. And this was bringing people in who had no prior knowledge. During the party and during that evening, they heard many strange, disturbing noises. And the guests described these as knocks, muffled explosions, shuffling feet, and angry voices exchanged in a... Angry voices involved in an angry exchange. So they were fighting. And they could also hear a voice. This is my favorite ghost manifestation I think I've ever come across. Reading aloud in a monotonous voice. (laughs) Could you imagine of all the ghosts stand up with... Like, seriously. And then she climbed the stairs and underneath, you know, like it's reading from a book in the most monotonous voice possible. Like, that would just be so annoying. Now, the guests who were invited to this event were perplexed. And they accused the servants and also each other of making the sounds. So it was a big blame-storming session. You did it. No, the servants did it. Blah, 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 blah. So during the evening, the people who were actually conducting the investigation stayed up to determine what was going on. And during the evening, they heard something huge pounding against the bedroom door. And they witnessed a black ghostly spaniel, which is a dog, appear out of thin air, walk towards them, and then vanish. It was known as one of the most paranormal house parties in history, and all but one of the guests were firmly convinced afterwards that the house was profoundly haunted. Now, the Marquis de Butte <laughs> and Miss X. I'd like to do, I'd love like a TV show with... You be the Marquis and I'll be Miss X. Sure. I'll be very, I'll have a very deep voice. I don't shave, women shouldn't shave. I'd have a squeaky voice. It'd be very very tall and flat chested. So these two outline their findings in a book that's called The Alleged Haunting of Bee House, which was published in 1899. And you can Mm -hmm. still get it. I wonder if Margot has a copy. I bet she does. I bet she knows about it. I'm sure she does. She knows everything. Sadly, Dan, there were no significant documented events at the house in later years. And... Balachin or Balachin House was demolished in 1963 after most of it had been destroyed by a terrible fire. 
So you can no longer visit it. It's gone. It's been completely raised. All that's left is the actual property. Maybe the ghosts were behind that. Exactly. The the dogs. The hellhounds. The dogs went and peed on a lamp and the whole thing went up. Mr. Dan, that is the story of Balachin House. Riley! And this, folks, was not planned at all. Mm -hmm. In fact, you and I came into this not knowing what the other was going to be doing. I shit you not. My next story is the haunted Victorian child dog. Child dog? Yes. (laughs) You are kidding me, dude. Oh, I love this. See, this is this this show was meant to happen. This was was meant meant to happen. happen. I love this story so much. This I'm about to tell you I love it. I love it. Okay. And this is my last story of the show. And I'm ending it on this one because I it brings I anyway, I'll just read it. So (laughs) I can tell you enjoy it. All right. So a troubled Chihuahua, (laughs) and this is recent. This is like, this is like the last couple of years. It's a new story. Oh yeah. A troubled Chihuahua who was in need of a home uh, has won the hearts of people across the internet after hilarious and brutally honest posts written by uh, the woman fostering him went viral. Okay. It's been picked up by NPR and okay. So the, the, the post begins. Okay. I've tried, uh, it begins the, the, this lengthy Facebook post by a woman by, name, uh, by the name of Tiffany Fortuna, who, uh, who fostered Prancer for Second Chance Pet Adoption League in New Jersey. And by that, uh, by this point, Prancer had been, had been with her for six months. Okay. And he's a okay. chihuahua. I love that his name is Prancer. Yeah. So she says, okay, I've tried. I've tried for the last several months to post this dog for adoption and make him sound palatable. <laughs> The problem is he's just not. There's not a very big market for neurotic, man-hating, animal-hating, children-hating dogs that look like gremlins. Oh, no. Oh. Prancer, she wrote, embodies the Chihuahua meme that describes the dogs as 50% hate and 50% tremble. (laughs) She went on, every day. We live in the grips of the demonic Chihuahua hellscape he has created in our home. It's not Prancer's fault that he is how he is. Uh, Prancer came to me obese, wearing a cashmere sweater with a bacon and egg cheese stuffed in his crate with him, the the post states, going on to explain that his former owner was a woman who treated him like a human and never socialized him. Poor Prancer spent his first few days in his foster home fearful and quiet, but ultimately that gave way to a different kind of personality. She went on to say, I was excited to see him come out of his shell and become a real dog, Fortuna wrote. I'm convinced at this point he is not a real dog, but more like a vessel for a traumatized Victorian child that now haunts our home. That said, Prancer does have some good qualities. He is loyal beyond belief, housebroken, knows some commands, and loves to be with the person he's bonded with, though that person will have to be a woman or women, the post warns. If you have a husband, don't bother applying unless you hate him. (laughs) She concluded by imploring those who have Always wanted your own haunted Victorian Victorian child in the body of a small dog that hates men and children to email the rescue. 
One-on-one with his chosen ladies, he's an amazing companion. In the wrong situation, he's a demon, she wrote. So, good news? Prancer has now been adopted. Prancer, the haunted Victorian child in the body of a small dog that hates men and children, has found a home with a woman named Ariel Davis, a 36-year-old resident of New Haven, Connecticut. She brought Prancer home last week, according to his newly uh, created Instagram account. And she went on to say, I read the article, I connected to it, and I was like, you know what? Why not? I'll just send them an email. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I'm a single woman. I'm a single lesbian. I live with another woman. I don't have any men in my life. I work in women's rehab. I don't have any other animals. It just felt like a perfect match, she said. Fortuna posted an update on her Facebook saying that she was thankful for everyone who shared the post about Prancer and that his adoption was one of the best days of her life. Oh, good. We do miss Prancer and he was loved here despite his quirks. I have a lot of experience with toxic men, so it was easy for me to overlook his malicious tendencies and love him anyway, she wrote. However, being relieved of the constant haunting of a Victorian child has me sleeping easier. My favorite statement of that was 50% hatred and 50% trembling. Yeah. So this this is a story that I I just recently found. When I first found it, I thought, oh my God, what is this story going to be about? obviously it's not at all and if you you've got to look at the picture you've got to look at the picture because he's so cute and angry looking oh and i like you know what it's the perfect post christmas story because his name is prancer yes exactly it's just and it's very light especially you know the last one i just talked about so i wanted to end on that what a great note to end on you know while you were saying that you accidentally said panzer and i thought what a great name for a doberman panzer panzer Panzer. because panzer was like a tank right i'd love to have a big shiny doberman named panzer they're beautiful dogs Dobermans are beautiful. They're not vicious like people. I think. don't. They're not my. They're not my kind of dog. You're right, though. They're not. They can be trained. Any dog can be trained yeah, to be vicious. Dog. All dogs are sweet if you train them. If you treat them with love and and I've kindness. not had good interactions with Chihuahuas, so I get it. My brother got a Chihuahua during the pandemic, and I've yet to meet it. Obviously, Big Butch brother. Yeah. Well, they've got two okay. dogs. Okay. Okay. One's a Chihuahua, and then one's a bigger dog. Yeah, I have yet to meet it. I'm curious. Like I'd like to, they're so small and I love all dogs. I love all We haven't had any updates from you in a while about your amazing brother-in-law. Well, how's he doing? Well, I just saw as we were recording this, a little thing popped up uh, a window from Steam saying he was playing Age of Empires 2. Okay, well, good for him. He's just unwinding with a nice, a nice manageable video game. There's the update. I am enjoying this episode so much, I have to tell you. This is the most fun I've had on The Weird in a while. Because usually our episodes are a, are just a Well, slog. we've also been dark-sided lately. Let's do this, we would say in our heads. I don't want to talk to this guy tonight, I would say to I myself. I say in my head, oh, that fucking Dan Lajois. That fucking Dan Lajois. Just shitting all over my life again. He thinks it's fertilizer. Mm-hmm. I think it's shit. Anyway, yep. no, um, we've been dark lately. We've been into some, we've been wading into some very dark waters. So this is kind of fun. It's a little more lighthearted than we usually are, right? We become very yes. serious. Yeah. We become scholars of the unusual. Anyway, okay, last story. Do you think we're going to get an honorary PhD? <laughs> I love when they do that. I also love it when it's some really bogus 
it's like some bogus celebrity, like not somebody like Harrison Ford, but like it's like today Pamela Anderson accepted her honorary degree <laughs> from air. And you know, you're like, oh, Jesus, there's no hope. Anyway, okay. Polly Shore gets an honorary degree from DeVry <laughs> God, Institute. Man. Okay, Dan, the last story I have to tell you is The Red Rain. Yeah, and this is really cute because it's so small and contained. July 22nd, 1955. I think the reason I did this because I love this guy's name so much. July 2nd, 1955, Ed Moots is out working in his garden. He's old and retired. Drops of warm red liquid begin to slowly fall from the sky in the area in which he is working. And in that particular area is a small peach tree that he's been growing and cultivating. Within minutes, it had become a light rainfall. And he looked up to see a dark cloud with a strange protuberance jutting from it. And the protuberance seemed to be the source of the strange red rain. And Ed stated as follows, and I quote, I looked up and hanging directly over me was the strangest cloud I had ever seen. It was a a big cloud, but it (laughs) certainly did have odd colors. It was dark green, red, and, and pink. The red in it matched the color of the substance. I could see that whatever it was that was raining down on me was coming from that cloud. I watched the cloud for a minute trying to figure it out and then my bare arms and hands where the drops had hit began to burn. They really hurt too. It felt like I had put turpentine on an open cut. I ran for the house and washed it off real good with strong soap and hot water. So, the following morning, Ed's peach tree and the grass beneath it were all dead. The poor peaches had actually shriveled on the branches and looked like prunes. Well, Ed Moots reported this and the U.S. Air Force came to investigate. They did a very thorough search of the area, took samples of the tree, the fruit, and the grass away with them. They were never seen again and never shared their findings. And Ed Moots reported that it never happened again. And it was this tight, confined yeah, it was area. it a really small area. It's like five feet, probably square. What? That's weird. Ed Moots. Didn't you tell a story about like weird globules, like like jelly falling from did the I? sky? I don't even remember. Maybe I did. In a lightning round or something. Doesn't sound familiar. Yeah, maybe the first odd maybe. and end. Or maybe I did that one. Or maybe that's one. You gotta I, see I a picture though. If you look it up, you see a picture of Ed Moots, and he's exactly what you're picturing in your head. You're gonna look him up, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. Type, type, type. I am damned. I'm typing away. Ed Moots, like M O O T S. Ed Moots. O T Moots. Mister Ed Moots. Mister Ed Moots. Table for two. Your table is ready. Oh yeah. Doesn't he look like what you expect? Yeah. Yeah. Just a poor guy. Is that him with the with yeah? His that's tree him with there. his tree, his poor shriveled tree. So this is a real guy. Like this is not an urban. No, it's a real, real story. And he said the Air Force came and they were very suspicious. And they took a whole bunch of samples and away they went. A lot of people think it was a military experiment. Yeah, I wonder if it was that Agent Orange type yeah, stuff. It could be something, some kind of weird chemical. But it. What year was this? Fifty something. It killed the tree and killed the grass, but it only and it burned Mister Moots's arm where he was exposed. That would make a lot of sense if this was an early incarnation of a terrible orange. substance. Man has created some awful things. The whole point was to 
destroy the canopy of the jungle so that they could see the Vietnamese soldiers below. So you know what I was thinking about the other day? Because that's my last story. I was thinking about all of the things, because now we're closing out season three, all of the things that we've talked about. And I was trying to think of Mm -hmm. all of the things that I have. And I would like to challenge you for the same thing. Of all the things that I presented here, the one that I find the most unsettling. And I went back and sort of thought about all of the stories that I've told our audience so far. And you know what the one that bothers me the most is that rat house one. It's the one where the divers go diving into the flooded basement and they see all of that demonic stuff. That one bothered me. That one stayed with me because I just find the image of it so unsettling. And the whole, there's this whole theory out there that the Nazis were involved in some really heavy occult shit. Well, they and were. So yeah. there's something about that one that got under my skin. So that's what I wanted to say. That one to me is the one that's kind of got, it's it stayed with me. You? I agree because it, it had that impact on me as well. It was the mo- one of the most like upsetting also in that, it got sealed, yeah. right? So we didn't even get closure on that damn story. The fact that divers went in there and died. No, they didn't die, but they freaked. They were just terrified. Yeah. So of the stories you've told, what one has really gotten yeah. into you? It's easy. Very easy. Because I, I find it quite troubling. And it's shaken me to my core really? a little bit. The exorcism of Roland. Right. Dunn. I remember that one. That's been That's recent. That's, that's in this season. That's in this season. And it... Uh, in terms of shaking me, like I, I, I've become a man of mm-hmm. science. I'm not a scientist, but I believe in reason. I believe in facts and critically thinking to search for the meaning of truth. And in that journey, I've ventured very far away from my, well, first from my faith and then to the point where I don't really have faith. Like You're like me, anymore. exactly like me. Yeah. And then, but even my spirituality has been challenged by this, right? And some of the stories that we've covered have made me almost wonder and question that path I've chosen. That story in particular really troubled and upset me. And in a weird way, and I mentioned this before, in a weird way, if it's true that there are these exorcists and that there's spirits, in a weird way, there's almost comfort to be found in that. Because and we, I think we talked at length with Marco yeah. about this, because that means maybe there really is an afterlife. Yeah. I wish there was. I wish there was. In terms of troubling, and the other one, Riley, I do need to mention that I, another impactful looking back at the three seasons that I would put at the same level as Roland Doe is the two-parter we did on Area 51. And for me, Bob yeah, was he's, And he's still around. Because that, that whole story for me really makes me wonder and question whether or not, uh, because I've always believed that aliens had not visited Earth, and I'm still not sure that they have, but that one really shakes my belief that they haven't. Anytime you turn over a rock dealing with um, unidentified uh, phenomena like that in the United States, you're going to find Bob Lazar. He's all he's so synonymous with all of that now. I tell you what, Dan, in uh, in season four, which is coming up, um, I am going to do Roswell. Oh, great! Because we've done Area Fifty One, and I think it's only fair that we do the actual Roswell event because that's an important part of that whole mythology. Well, not mythology. That whole the what's the word I'm looking for, Dan? Lexicon. Lexicon. Let's say lexicon. Yeah, I want to do it. I think it needs to be done. I just need some time. 
Did you hear in the news, this was just, I read this in Vice this past week, that NASA has hired uh, or contracted all these religious Mm -hmm. leaders with the idea of how they would try to mine them to see what would happen if extraterrestrial life is, you know, it comes to the surface that it exists. And how would your people react? Oh, that would be such an interesting conversation. So there's speculation that, okay, so they've just hired 30 of these people. Why? Oh, okay. So they're saying maybe that's how 2022 will outdo 2021. Mm-hmm. In 22, we get aliens. Oh my God. Wouldn't that just shake the foundations of everything? Oh, and I, I, I'm going to do another preview too. Go for before it. Before we go. I've been working on this one for a long time. Becoming in season four will be my take on Jack. The yeah, Rock. you've talked about that. And I can't wait because, you know, I don't know much about it. No, I only know what I've learned oh. from the movies. Yeah. And it, it, it's, there's some really great source material. And this is one where it's taken a bit more time because it's, it's not internet reading. It's book reading because mm-hmm. the best sources for this one are, are in books. So I'm really looking forward to doing uh, that. Uh, in season four. Oh, brilliant. I can't wait for season four. Um, Folks, we should tell you now what to expect uh, in the next little while, right? It's only fair. So Dan and I are going to be off for probably about a month. Most podcasts are going off right now for a little bit of a break and we need one. Um, I'm in heavy rehearsals right now for a show and that will be going to the Edinburgh Fringe next year. So I know yes. if there's any Scottish um, uh, people out there who want to come and see me, I would, I'm going to set up a meet and greet night in uh in when i'm there to see if anybody wants to come out and say hi and have a have a drink so in season four we've got some cool shit coming sean's gonna be back Margot, um our beloved Margot, is going to be back as well now she's going to be a regular and and just note that sean's not beloved to sean sean's coming back and our beloved Margot. oh did i frame it that way i'd be the worst parent this is my daughter jenny isn't she lovely and this is my son <laughs> Sean, our beloved friends yes, are coming yes, back. Our treasured show. friends uh, yeah. to uh, to tell us their tales. So um, yeah, folks, we're going to leave you for about a month. Dan, anything you want to say before we go? I honestly, I don't think Riley and I really thought uh, very far when we started this. We just knew we wanted to perform together and 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 talk and create. And it's been a wild journey. I I really can't believe that it's three seasons, 75 episodes that we've done. I know. And uh, it's been a lot of fun and it's been wonderful to have a, 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 and really has sort of taken our breath away to have a global audience for something that honestly, honestly, uh, we weren't sure if we were going to have a hundred listeners <laughs> with this thing when we started and uh, to see it grow and to have fan base that we do is just, it's, um, it's really quite nice and wonderful. So folks, Thank you so much for listening to the first 75 uh, episodes. If you enjoy listening to The Weird, then please spread the word of The Weird with everyone that you know. Get our story out there because we enjoy telling the stories and we love having you listen. Absolutely. And remember, we're not leaving. We're just taking a moment to catch our breath. So we'll be back probably in late January, early February with more Tales of the Weird for season four. And it's going to be a roller coaster ride of weirdness. I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Riley. Thanks for doing this with me. Um, I was going to say that too. It's like, it's really sealed our friendship for life. And I like that. I like that I get to see you on a regular basis. And you're one of the, my favorite people. So yeah, I really enjoy this. 
As much as I tease you, <laughs> you are one of my favorite Me too. All right. Enough with the yeah. uh, sentimentality. Love you folks. Thanks for joining us on The Weird, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Good night, everybody.